Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning. Good morning. G'day, this is Annie. Uh, And me, Kim. Yes, on this Saturday morning on Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. We've got a bit of a program today. Today we're going a bit to of one. a bit of a one. We're going to uh, kick off with a interview with Anthony Lowenstein, that author excellent, who uh, has been recently to Honduras. He uh, will explain why he's in Honduras, but uh, I wanted to uh, follow up uh, his visit to Honduras because it might have reached your radar that uh, quite an important uh, activist, an environmental and human rights activist, Berta Cáceres, was killed in March of this year. Now, this is a woman who was awarded the Goldman Environmental Prize, which is a major international affair. She had uh, international proven, uh, prominence, she was uh, part of a uh, opposition group uh, working uh, against one of the biggest hydropower projects on a major river in her country. Now, this river is uh, important to the uh, whole... I mean, it's, it's kind of like, uh, if we think about it in an Australian sense, it's like uh, Indigenous people's connection to land. It's in, it's entwined into the entire consciousness of that group of people's uh, understanding of uh, the world, their cosmology. Anyway, uh, she was murdered, but she wasn't the only person from that organisation that was murdered about a year before or at a demonstration, another leader of that organisation was shot dead by a um, an army officer in in uh, in the uh, during that demonstration. So it's it, it's worth looking into this whole business of the connection between uh, capitalism, uh, power of government in uh, enforcing the role of capital. And the connection between human rights and environmentalism and the incredible bravery of people who stand up. So I got a chance to talk to uh, Anthony Lowenstein, who'd recently been there. So he gives us a picture of what Honduras is like. And I presume that is a picture that is repeated across the world. Um, That's the first thing we're going to talk, uh, how we're going to do that. And later on, we're going to talk to a person that you've brought to the program, Kim. Uh, yes, uh, Tess Dimos from the Monash Student Association, and she's going to be talking to us about um, something 
I suppose, a little uh, happier um, a victory. Um, people might have heard about um, the plight of uh, Dr. Benick and his family who were facing deportation after their application for permanent res- residency was denied because of their son's um, mild autism. Uh, really a heartless move by the government, especially when, as they point out, um, he's a professor at Monash University and his wife is a GP and they've contributed a lot to the community, far more than the Peter Duttons of the world, obviously, but they were facing returning to Bangladesh, a place that's completely foreign to their son. So we're going to be talking to Tess about that. Yeah, and it's very interesting, isn't it, that uh, the student union at Monash took it up as a cause celebre. Yes, yeah. well, I mean, I think it's what student unions and unions should do in general, um, as well as their obviously very important activities for their members. Yeah, rights. and la- well, later on we've got This Is The Week That Was, and we're going to follow up last time we were here with uh, the second part of, or parts of a conversation I had with Vince Emmanuel about America and uh, its lead up to the next presidential election which he did say to me, it's been going on for so long that uh, he thinks that everybody is going a bit doolally. <laughs> well, it's, some, it's like House of Cards. There's a lot going on. It's all crazy, but it's um, you're missing each episode. You're <laughs> confused so every time you tune in. Because there's too much, too, too much. much. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. Thank you. What a cool woman is she. A great song. Yeah, that's right. You're on uh, Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim on 3CR and we're going to go now to my chat with Anthony Lowenstein about what's going on in that place, Honduras. So I was going to Honduras for two reasons. One, I'm starting work on a new book on the global war on drugs and Honduras is tragically one of the key sites of drug trafficking in the world. The majority of cocaine coming into the US is going through Honduras. Honduras is not producing the cocaine but it's a transit country so drugs often will go from Colombia or Venezuela into Honduras, into Mexico, into the US and inevitably there is all the problems that you'd expect with that industry, so violence, gang, wars, um, corruption, all those sort of things. So I was doing research for that and also I got a grant from a US publication to go there and do research on the role of the US in Honduras, which has mostly been a very dark one for the last decades, especially since the 2009 coup, which after it happened, Hillary Clinton, who was then Secretary of State, very much supported the coup, as did the US administration. And since then, the country that, that was already in bad shape has just become a lot worse. So it was a really difficult, challenging place to visit, to put it mildly. <laughs> well, I mean, the m- most uh, important event that's uh, reached our ears has been the murder of Berta Caceres, the yes. uh, human rights 
activist and uh, environmentalist. In fact, it's interesting, the human rights and environmentalist uh, are so intertwined because uh, she was an Indigenous person, wasn't she? She was. So she was murdered on the 3rd of March this year. She was, as you said, an environmental activist. She was very prominent. She was not massively prominent, I was told, in Honduras until, ironically, she was killed. She was possibly more well-known outside of Honduras. She was obviously known in Honduras, but maybe particularly in certain kinds of circles. The media in Honduras is pretty awful and very pro-government. So voices that are critical don't get a lot of airtime, although social media is hugely increasing in popularity in Honduras, like in so many countries. So that's changing. She was murdered um, as I said, on the 3rd of March, I spent time with her family. I went to the village where she was killed um, called La Esperanza. It's not entirely 100% clear who killed her, but it looks likely that it was a combination of figures associated with the Honduran military and the uh, company uh, whose hydroelectric plan she was fighting. One thing listeners should be aware is that Honduras is a country full of uh, awful plans to um, develop programs and plans around the country of energy uh, projects and usually they are uh, committed to not just kicking out indigenous peoples but also um, making them incredibly impoverished in the process. She was campaigning against a hydroelectric plan not that far from where she lived. She made the company that was involved very upset. She made the Honduran government very upset. She made the military in Honduras very upset. People should also be aware that Honduras is a country where there's not really a separation between the church and the military. In other words, sorry, the, well, the church and the military are well, very close. Well, that was the sleep of the, the time, state. wasn't it? <laughs> yes, indeed. Indeed. Actually, meant the... Um, the military and the government, although they're often very closely intertwined. And so she was murdered. I, I went to where she was murdered, um, the house. And you really realize the extent of the depravity in Honduras when you understand the death of her because there's little chance that the real murderers will ever be captured, let alone prosecuted, let alone sent to jail. And... She, I think, represents very much the grim reality of a post-2009 coup and it emerged a few months ago that there was a so-called hit list that certain members of the Honduran military were using to eliminate critics of both the government and also certain um, energy projects. She was top of that list. She was murdered and a number of other people who are on that list, near the top of the list I've spent time with in the last few weeks, and they rightly fear for their lives. They're not fleeing the country. They're remaining in Honduras, but they uh, fear for their lives, and realistically, they don't really have you know, an army of security around them. They may have slightly increased their security, but ultimately, if you are an environmental activist and the military wants to kill you, it's going to be pretty hard to avoid that. So it's a very difficult situation. Well, that particular uh, uh, hydro uh, electric plan, power, hydro power uh, arrangement mm. the, along that river is uh, so four dams, 
uh, that would and the um, people behind it, uh, a local company called D- DESA, DESA, International mm-hmm. Engineers and Finance Companies. But her work and the uh, her leadership, I guess, uh, uh, with Indigenous populations there, because though that river has a, a, an important, almost sacred element to it in their lives, right? So what, Very much so. So what we're talking about here is an effort which stopped or will cause the Chinese uh, Sin Hydro to withdraw as well as the World Bank's private sector um, to withdraw finance. That preceded her murder, right? It did. It did. One of the things I think that really was so tragic about her murder, apart from the obvious fact that a, a great environmental leader was eliminated, and just for listeners who aren't aware, she won the Goldman Prize last year, which is one of the world's leading environmental prizes. She went to New York in the US and uh, was awarded that prize. People can Google her speech. It's actually worth She spoke in Spanish, of course, but the speech is, um, has English subtitles, and it's worth listening to it because what she really talks about then and in many other opportunities uh, after that was the fact that, as you said, the many of the spaces for um, the environmental movement does have a religious overtone. A lot of these people are not, I mean, some people I met were religious, they were Christian, some were not. Berta apparently was born in the Catholic faith with her family but wasn't particularly religious by any means. But it takes on a religious element, to so, so to speak. And the fact that there is a um, growing elimination of environmental activists really is not, shows this issue is not just about Honduras. Yes, Bertha was focusing on issues in her country, but it goes to a wider question. One only has to look at various other countries, both in Latin America, Central America, um, parts of India, where environmental activists who are challenging huge energy projects, whether it's coal, whether it's hydroelectricity, are facing death or excommunication from their communities or attacks. And I think this is only tragically going to increase as those who support dirty energy projects, whether it's coal or hydroelectric, are realising that not just public opinion is turning against them. One only has to look as one very quick example that Donald Trump, if he becomes president of the U.S. in November, has talked about massively expanding American uh, coal interests, massively um, expanding coal mining. Now, people might say he doesn't, doesn't have much of a chance of winning. That may well be true, but I would say, in fact, he has got a decent chance of winning, and if you're a candidate as he is, you have a shot of winning. That's well, the reality. Well, 50-50. Absolutely. I think right now probably Hillary Clinton is more likely to win, but it's, you know, four months to go and uh, anything can happen, three and a half months to go. So I guess my point being that if the message is coming from the President of the United States that dirty energy projects are the way to go, that message trickles down to countries outside the US, including Honduras. And For listeners who might not be aware, Honduras and the U.S. have had a pretty long and dirty relationship where essentially Honduras has become a U.S. client state, both during the 80s when the U.S. used used Honduras as a base when it was supporting some of the literally genocidal um, 
projects in Latin and South America, including in Guatemala. Honduras was a key U.S. staging post and backing place for that. Fast forward to 2016, as I said, post-2009, when there was a coup, there's not a great deal of evidence the U.S. actually led the coup, but, or possibly even knew about the coup. I'm not saying they didn't, but I haven't seen evidence that they did. However, when the coup happened, in 2009, the U.S., particularly, as I said before, under Hillary Clinton, were very quick to support it, despite the fact that every country in the region opposed it. And the effect of that has been a huge culture now of impunity, um, not just for politicians and businessmen, but also drug dealers and gangs, to the point where I've traveled to some pretty dangerous places in my life, Afghanistan and elsewhere, and Honduras, though, is actually become in the last five or six years one of the most dangerous nations of a non-war zone. So it's not Syria, it's not Iraq, um, it's not uh, Afghanistan, but it is very dangerous. And this is mostly gangs who are working. Who are they working for? Who are they working for? Who are they working for? Well, the gangs essentially is a few different things. Briefly, one uh, gangs impose something called a so-called war tax. A war tax means anyone who has a business in most areas of the main cities have to pay a tax to simply operate in that area. You might be running a shop. You might be a taxi driver, whatever it may be. So they're gangsters. They're gangsters. Exactly. Yeah, to protect Very well armed, for sure. And it's also uh, important to remember that many of the people who are running these gangs were individuals who were fleeing to the U.S. in years past, seeking immigration. The U.S. sent these people back to Honduras, which the U.S. under Obama has done unprecedented numbers, I might add. And the effect of that has been that many of these gang members and gang leaders have caused absolute carnage. So I was meeting a number of people who work in small businesses who uh, literally had to pay a war tax to two, three, four gangs. And if they don't pay, they will be shot. They will be killed. There is no question about that. There are public buses that are being stopped on a daily basis in major cities bus drivers being killed, being attacked for simply not paying a war tax. This, it's basically, a, it's like a war zone, but not like Syria. So in many major cities, it was too dangerous for me to literally walk the streets. So I would go in a car, get out, go on the footpath, go into a building. Obviously, I stand out. I'm a Westerner, so I don't look like a local. But even many locals who I was spending time with were saying to me that, they themselves do not walk the streets. So just think about what that does to your life, to your existence, how you feel about having children, about sending your kids to school, about having a social life, about having a work life. And the reason why there's been such a major exodus, ex- exodus of Hondurans to the U.S. in the last years, uh, although many of them are being sent back by Obama, is that there are no jobs. This insecurity and people are scared for their lives. They can't start a business because if they start a business, they're going to have to, as I said, pay a war tax. And if you're paying a war tax to two, three, four gangs, you can't afford it. It's simply no. impossible. So, so people so, are taking a long, you know, long mission onto the US. So, it's a very so dangerous one. An- yeah. Anthony, on a daily basis, when you were there, you had a driver and a bodyguard? Question mark? I didn't have a, I didn't have a bodyguard. Um, generally speaking, I... Whenever I travel anywhere, I avoid a bodyguard unless it's massively necessary. So I was traveling with a, uh, most of the time, a local fixer. A fixer is something that a journalist works with who, in my case, was a, 
a young Honduran guy. He spoke English fluently. He was a translator. He was an organizer. Obviously, we worked out a plan together. He gives advice. He tries to keep you safe. He, he doesn't carry a weapon by any means, but you take his advice about where to go and where not to go. We often had a drive. We would hire a, a local taxi that he would trust, and we get around. So you're doing it very low-key. You don't stand out. You're not sort of driving in a armored car or anything like that. An average person wouldn't know who I was, and that's obviously the point. You try to stay under the radar. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not giving the impression that, you know, it's like Syria where there's barrel bombs being dropped on suburbs. It's not like that. But there's a reason why Honduras and now increasingly um, El Salvador uh, nearby are so dangerous, and that is a lot to do with the drug trade, and that was a key focus of my research. Now, the next thing is, what's the point of the central government? <laughs> what's the point in what ways, and what are they well, doing? Well, I mean, what, who are they? Are they just sort of uh, a business of their own? Because is Honduras considered to be a democracy? Well, the Honduran government would say they are, <laughs> um, but many Hondurans that I spent time with would say it's not. Honduras really is a narco state, and meaning that every level of government, from the president down, has a degree of complicity in the drug trade, either making money from it, involved in transporting it, involved in getting money from it, involved in protecting gangs or military figures who are transporting it. I'm not saying every single official in the Honduran uh, hierarchy is corrupt. I'm saying that at every level of government there is corruption. And the effect of that means there's a complete culture of impunity. So, for example, when Berta Caceres is murdered, there is a hope in a normal democracy that there'll be an investigation, the Attorney General will investigate, the police will investigate. There's no hope in Honduras that that investigation will be done fairly. The government claims that that will be happening and they've arrested people who they say were involved in her murder. That may well be the case, those people were involved, but the people who are involved much higher up the chain have not been arrested. Um, so, and, it's, and it's fulfilled yeah. its function. She's gone, so therefore it's allowing further things to happen. Absolutely. That now, what's, is mean, there any that, difference yeah. between the police and the military? Well, yes. In terms of who are on the streets, the people that you see day to day, it's mostly police. You see military as well, but it's mostly police. And there's different levels of police to the point where a few years ago the U.S. gave lots of money to fund the group called the Tigres and I actually spent some time with them. They were a new police, quasi-police force that was set up because it acknowledged that the original police force was so corrupt and so awful and so violent that there was a need for so-called clean skins to uh, emerge. So the U.S. has funded this and trained them. And as I said, I spent some time with them when I was there. Apparently they are less bad than the normal police force, which is good, but still deeply problematic in terms of corruption and violence. And the role of the U.S. here is so central. I'm not suggesting that everything that's bad happening in Honduras is because of Washington. That's not the case. But there is a long history of U.S. meddling in Honduras. And I spent time with the U.S. there for a few days. I spent time with the U.S. ambassador. I saw some of their programs. It was very interesting. I was frankly surprised I got access to that considering uh, my record being very critical of U.S. foreign policy. But nonetheless, I did. And the U.S. embassy in Honduras sees its role as working alongside the Honduran government rather than directing at what to do, but in practice and in reality, the U.S. has massive influence there. And 
because there's never really been any degree of accountability for crimes that have been committed by the Honduran state in years past, the U.S. is choosing to turn a blind eye. And I think there's really one key reason for that, particularly under the Obama administration when there's been a surge of young children and young adults coming from Central America as immigrants to the U.S., from Guatemala, from El Salvador, from Honduras. The U.S. was desperate to stop these people coming because it was becoming a political problem for Obama. So they made a lot of dirty deals with Mexico, with Honduras and other states to keep those people as much as possible in their own countries, despite the fact that there are huge dangers for those people in those countries. And as I said before, a lot of people I was speaking to were saying that despite the dangers of traveling from Honduras to the U.S., and we should people might not be aware of this, but the danger or the um, path from Honduras to the U.S. is incredibly dangerous. You are going through areas controlled by gangs. There is mass rape going on of um, women who are being uh, trafficked. You have to ride dangerous trains where people often are mugged or killed or raped. It's unbelievably dangerous. And despite those risks, a lot of Hondurans are still going or trying to get to the U.S. because, as I said, Honduras has essentially become a, a quasi-failed state and people hope that they might have a better chance. And one last final thing, Honduras only has a very small population, about 8, 9 million people, and about a million of those people are living in the U.S. So there's a massive U.S.-Honduran relationship, regardless of what happens between the governments. And people often fly back and forth. A lot of Hondurans in Honduras receive money from their families in the U.S., so there's a very close tie between both those nations. Uh, we'll, wa- we'll uh, watch with great interest in your upcoming book. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Bit of a rough edit there. I, I'm sleepy. Uh, hard work this week, Kim, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> well, that was harrowing. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Uh, the uh, things that uh, are happening uh, close uh there and in a whole range of other places, it be, it's uh, important to be alert and aware. Um, there were demonstrations in the city just the other day uh, around Ethiopia. There's been some uh, pretty terrible things happening in Ethiopia. Uh, uh, Everybody was lifting up their heads, wondering what's going on, and then I went and investigated. There's been uh, lots of there's been a crackdown and um, uh, by the government, and people have been siphoned off and put into prison, and nobody is allowed to say a word, and people being killed. Over a hundred people that have been killed must have been to do with demonstrations. That's terrifying. People just being disappeared. Yeah, that's exactly right. But we were having a chat off off mic. Uh, about um, the insane thing that the French government's been trying to perpetrate on... uh, uh, Just going around assaulting women on beaches. Yeah, on beaches, trying to get them to stop. What's the name of the garb that uh, they're trying to... I think they're calling it the burkini. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they've made a law that actually says that it's illegal for people to cover up entirely when they go swimming. Which is so bizarre. Absolutely terrifying. I saw the burkini and I just thought, as a redhead with very pale skin, that's just sensible beachwear. They should put a 
brim on it and it would be perfect. <laughs> it's quite bizarre to think that uh, people could uh, make a law. And I started to think uh, about this. There's so many things that you could think about. And did you know that in France, and this really blew me away, that the French actually used to have a law that banned women from wearing trousers? Really? Yeah, that's right. They're obsessed with the uh, what people wear quite clearly. And not people, but particularly women. female people. Yes, that's right. So someone, one group of people, seem to be thinking that it's appropriate to make laws that are specifically targeted towards women. I always think that before anyone says anything about what women should and shouldn't wear, regardless of any issues to do with religion, race, anything like that, that they should turn around to the closest wall and smack their head against it and say it is not progressive to tell women what to wear and just keep doing that. <laughs> just repeat. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, one of the uh, areas closer to home, closer than Honduras, that uh, we should be con- constantly made aware of is West Papua. So I'm going to play George Tallick's uh, hymn to West Papua. And there was this fantastic piece of uh, YouTube uh, video on Facebook of New Zealand university students en masse, Maori New New Zealand university students making a haka in demonstration for what's going on in West Papua. I thought more and more creative demonstrations should be done. Sun e go down Sun e come up Nawari stop yet Tongol West Papua Sun e go down Sun e come up Nawari stop yet New illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3CR has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon Fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website. 3cr.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to. Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to. You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio. You got it right, you've won a giraffe. Uh, We're at 855am, we're on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by by Neil Mitchell. 
And you're back here with Annie and Kim on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast. Yes, and hi Tess. We're also here with Tess from the Monash Student Union. Thanks for coming in so early. Oh, that's okay. How are you going? Good. Um, We wanted to ask you about um, a bit of a victory for students um, and workers, which is people might have heard about the terrible case of Dr. Benik, who has been here for nine years and he's a professor at Monash University and his wife is also a doctor and GP, but they were refused permanent residency because of their son's mild autism. Um, And the students and workers have really been key in actually stopping them from being deported. I was wondering if you could tell us, Tess, how it is that students started to take up this issue. Yeah, absolutely. I just um, I found out about it through an Age article and started posting it around. I'm from the um, student union at Monash University. So we, we've run a few different sort of social justice campaigns before, but to hear from someone at Monash who was going to be deported on such atrocious grounds, like it was... It was on the basis that they were going to be a burden to the Australian Health and Community Services because their kid had autism. Um, so, I don't know, we we first started by saying we're going to do a solidarity photo um, and then decided that we would start up an open letter and, you know, within a couple of days we had about 80 to 100 signatures on the open letter from academics around Monash and other staff members and then... The day came for the um, solidarity photo and I think nearly 200 people ended up coming out to, to show solidarity with the family, which, you know, was then something that we could get in the media and um, make a bit of a splash around that I think would, of course, uh, um, or helped uh, encourage the Immigration Department to intervene because, yeah, it was a few days after that. Oh, Somehow we got disconnected. And hopefully we'll get be able to get Tess back in Two Shakes of a Lamb's Tale. But uh, while we're in getting ourselves in order, we'll go to the man. And we're back again. G'day, Tess. Oh, got you at the wrong moment. Go on. You're obviously having incredible difficulties. It's not us. It's not us. It's not our technical difficulties. It's your phone. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's my phone. Oh, that's all right. Um, this is Annie here. I, I was really interested in – this is a particular case, and we know that uh, uh, Dr. Monique had to rely on the uh, immigration – Department and Border Force, I have to quickly add, uh, Minister to decide ministerial decree that they were allowed to stay. This is an issue, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the same for all cases in this situation because there's a really appalling um, clause in the Migration Act that says if you're going to be or if you're going to have any kind of illness that's going to cause you to take out Australian health or community services, then you can't um, be granted permanent residency in Australia and it just depends on the immigration minister to say whether or not you can stay. It's an outrage, isn't it, really? Yes, I know. Yeah, it is. Especially since these are, not that you judge people like this, but they're 
good people who actually contribute to society as opposed to the Peter Duttons of the world. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think that's part of the reason why they got a lot of support. Um, but on the other hand, like there's there's so many people, you know, that's going to be in this situation who aren't doctors and academics and, you know, the kind of people that I guess um, more respectable sections of society will look up to you. And to find out what's going to end up happening to them in the same situation is, is pretty heartbreaking. But I know that there's been a bunch of other cases um, in which trade unions have, have helped them out. There was a nurse who was going to be deported to Vietnam last year from Townsville, um, and the nurses' union helped her out in a public campaign to get ministerial intervention there. But, you know, it's only in those those small number of cases in which a big public campaigns run around about it um, by union or, or by the family itself that the minister does actually end up intervening. I think it's really fantastic because the approach that you've taken is related to that as well, which is involving unions, including the National, uh, National Tertiary Education Union, but also beyond that, I think you included other unions in the campaign as well. Yeah, we did. So with the open letter, we tried to get um, people from different unions to sign on to it. I think the, um, the MUA and the Electrical Trades Union, there were people from those unions that signed on, the RTBU as well. So, yeah, there were a few different unions that sort of um, added their support to the campaign. Now, the principle, of course, is that they're saying that... Um generally speaking, that the Australian community uh, only wants immigrants if they're going to be useful to us, not if the community can be useful to them. Uh, Yeah, yeah, so what does that... uh, I mean, the government only makes these laws, uh, we, we presume, because they believe that this is the general belief of the community. It's a fair thing. How can we help to change? Uh, you know, bring, expose. Does your does your campaign actually expose that the general community doesn't hold that view? Oh well, I hope so. I mean, we just had overwhelming support for this guy. I didn't speak to a single person or Monash who said no, he should be deported. Um, but to be honest, I, I don't think that a lot of the laws are made about. Um, this being a, a general view of the people of Australia, but I think it's much more a political thing. I mean, you can see it in, in this case itself. The, the two people who are going to be deported were both doctors. You know, if you actually weighed it up according to how much profits this was going to cost Australian society, um, you would have to end up saying that they should be allowed to stay. But I think it was it was a, a politically motivated um like law that is in place that says, you know, we want to make sure that immigrants are only judged on the basis of how much they can provide to this country and encourage people to think that they're a drain on Australian resources. How do you think, um, because I think that this has been a wonderful victory, how do you think that in light of this victory we should continue with um, the campaign to stop deportations? Um, Well, one of the great things that happened actually was Melbourne University was going to have a solidarity photo similar to Monash, um, and they ended up turning it into a solidarity photo with refugees who are currently stuck on Nauru um, and the refugees who are on Manus Island that's about to be closed, calling for those refugees to be brought to Australia. 
Um, and Dr. Bennick himself went and spoke at um, that solidarity photo to tell his story, but also to say that the immigration um, laws in Australia are so inhumane that, you know, it's not just the people who are already living here that are being mistreated, but all of the refugees in offshore detention need our assistance as well. So I think more of those kind of public campaigns that you can run, whether it's over people who are um, being denied permanent residency that already live here, or whether it's the people who are trying to come to this country fleeing, you know, whatever it might be, war, poverty, persecution. Um, they're the kind of people that we need to be trying to help through those kind of public campaigns now. Which leads us to the big uh, march that's happening today down at uh, the state library steps. It starts, there's a big rally at one o'clock about yeah, refugees. Absolutely. Yes. Um, before we let you go, uh, being part of the uh, um, student population, you would have uh, been part of the National Day of Action that uh, NUS uh, called on uh, the 25th. Yeah, last Wednesday, yeah. Yeah. Can you give us a, a little report on uh, what happened? Yeah, I mean, we had a, a rally from um, from the State Library in Melbourne, but there were protests across Australia. I mean... A, an important campaign to keep going because there has been ongoing attempts to privatise the university sector, um, which, you know, I've, I've had a lot of conversations actually with, with Dr Panik himself, who is on, um, you know, facing similar problems to most people who work in the university sector with the increasing attempts to privatise the sector, but that's going to have a huge impact on students. So it's a campaign we've been running for a few years now. The the protest was um, pretty successful, I think. I hope that we're going to have more ones into the future, and I'm sure we will. Do, do you think that uh, the privatisation of the universities, uh, uh, the effect that that people in general have an understanding of the effect that this will, the run-on effect that this is going to have by denying large proportions of the country's people from uh, institutions of higher learning. Do, the, the effect it's going to have on our society is going to be massive. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. Um, and the extent to which people understand that, I think, um, depends on campaigns like the the one that the National Union of Students is running. Because, you know, like when this policy first came out, it was something like... Um, 30% of people disagreed with it. But most people had no idea what deregulation meant, you know, deregulation of university fees. What on earth does that mean? Um, But, you know, it was after we did start kicking up a bit of a a fuss about it, trying to organise protests, etc., that it it turned out by the end of that year, 2014, 80% of the population was opposed to to the measure. So the extent to which people understand what sort of an impact is going to have, I think, depends on unions, particularly student unions in this case, standing up against it. Yeah, absolutely. And I look forward to there being more ratbag students on the news <laughs> uh, when they try and get through these um, budget-saving measures that they keep talking about. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> Thanks, Tess. Thanks for talking Thank to you. us today, Tess. Thank you guys so much. Which base provides key information for every US drone strike, played a crucial role in Iraq and Afghanistan wars, 
as well as providing targeting and surveillance information for the Israeli Defence Force. Star Wars. The Empire Strikes Back. War is terrorism. It's the Pine Gap Joint Defence Facility, located just 20 kilometres from Alice Springs on Arundel Country, and this year marks 50 years of its inglorious existence. Come and join the closed Pine Gap protest near the gates of the base from September 26 to 30th. For all the details, head to closepinegap.org. Getting quick to book your early bird bus ticket from Melbourne for just $200 return. That's closepinegap.org. See you there. Close Pine Gap is a 3CR supporter. Is terrorism. You're on 3CR with Annie and Kim on Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, before we go to This Is The Week That Was, I just love to have a chat with Kim and anybody else who's interested about the way the Turnbull government or Mr Turnbull has been using the uh, Australian Federal Police and, in fact, other uh, organs of uh, control within the country to further their uh, failing fortunes. Please fill me in. Yeah, well, the other day there was this fantastic, uh, complete, set up media event at uh, the uh, uh, Federal Parliament House where uh, the uh, members of the Labor staff of uh, uh, Shorten were being walked through corridors uh, of the Parliament House down into the bowels with uh, all the media taking flashing pictures and stuff as they walked down to talk to the Federal Police about a leak apparent leak about the NB, the National Broadband Network, right? And Mm. what the story, the real story, wasn't about the walk of shame. The real story was that the uh, NBN is going to cost something like a further $22 billion of public money in order to be rolled out. But that, of course, was supposed to be diver- our attention was supposed to be diverted by this walk of shame. It was a fantastic um, beat up, but also an incredible sort of fascistic um, use of uh, police by the um, theatre. In, in, yeah, into the their opposition, like it, it, it's to show that. The, I presume that uh, in the back of people's minds that the Labor Party is somehow rather criminal. Mm. Isn't that incredible? And actually there's a little snippet in um, the, the paper today about how uh, the uh, ombudsman is going to look into uh, electoral irregularities uh, from the Andrew government uh, uh, something about, I don't know, using staffers to do election campaigning or something like that. So, you know, some sort of actual detail amongst the uh, the stuff. But it's obviously they're hotting up for this campaign to tar the, Liberal, the Labor Party with some sort of uh, a scent of criminality. Well, I guess that's what you do when you happen to be the incumbent and you are in control of the state apparatus. You use it politically against your opposition. But it's like watching their brains work. Like the other thing that happened here, the CFA, the issue about the CFA and the UFU, which I was talking about on uh, Stick Together, Michaela Cash 
the oh that was hilarious yeah, when no, she yeah. was actually and questioned she, yeah well she writes she writes an article in the Sun Herald an opinion piece which is uh, Adam Bant actually says that she should be fired from her job because she actually he says uh, you know he's uh, I'm not saying he he said she actually made untruths in this article she was misleading she was being misleading and then they have their um that's that's the beginning of their little gambit throughout the week and we can see see their brains working so she does the opinion piece then they go the pm comes out of the sky and uh, goes down to Coldstream to shake hands with the uh, local cfa people and say things like, oh, it's terrible, it's awful, I'm just amazed at this dreadful attack on on volunteerism at the CFA, you know. And it's all just a complete and utter beat-up. So what they think is that people are all going to turn on these people and, and the Liberal Party coalition's fortunes are going to uh, uh, bloom blossoms after the fire, effectively. But I just the thing that I find terrifying is that in Australia, in all these country towns where that are bushfire prone, they do not have professional firefighters. What they do is they outsource it to people who don't have the kind of training well, and are not professionals. From my experience of living in the bush, each of these people, there's a clique of people that are considered to be good blokes who are allowed to be in the team. I grew and, up next and, to a CFA, actually. It was I mean, terrible. Yeah, it's just my experience. <laughs> What were you going to say? I grew up next to a CFA and it was just terrible. They set off the alarms at nine o'clock every Sunday, so people might construe from that that I'm a bit biased against the CFA. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, we're not going. We're not having a go at the CFA. We're just saying that. Um... Just me. <laughs> <laughs> a weak solidarity, Bricky team listener. When I know it's early, the sun is not yet over. But for once, let's ignore that and raise a toast. Nay, let's raise a stubby to Carlton and United against evil workers and unfair work commissioner Val Gostens Nickoff picketers for their courageous stand against evil union bullying with this irresponsible dispute at Sea United against evil workers. Both supporting good, good workers who, as the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review editorialised Thursday, just want to go to work. And would we believe, listener, these good, good workers who just want to go to work have been subjected to such vitriolic verbal violence as scab in a civilised society? Well, in a society where all but evil workers are civilised, who would have thought such remnants of when there used to be class struggle and class warfare could still exist? In a wise decision, Commissioner Gostensnikov picketers banned people who don't want to go to work from abusing people who just want to go to work. Although at this stage, sadly, scabby, an inflatable rat, has not been banned. Banning the verbal intimidation based on an anti-bullying law brought in by the previous Socialist Party government, that great friend of workers. We all know the evil union, lazy, avaricious workers who don't want to go to work, don't want to go to work by having to apply for the jobs they were sadly let go from and reapply for the same job at a fraction of their wages and conditions. When the contractor to see United Against Involved, programmed for profit, just wants to strike a balance between the programmed profit bit and work agreed. 
as opposed to the non-greedy workers who just want to go to work. And as reflecting on our anger last week that we can't say what we feel about people we hate, this attack on our right to hate those who threaten our way of life, the same Capitalist Review editorial covered that ground most sensibly. That on one hand, not being able to call a scab a scab may be a contravention of that right of free speech to hate those we must hate. How's this for logic, listener? Making racist hate remarks unlawful, quote, is unlikely to stamp out genuine racism and may even stoke it by suppressing free speech. But while they support free speech, calling someone a scab, quote, is laced with intimidation and implicit or even explicit incitement to violence. Freedom of speech should not extend to such incitement. Brilliant argument. Logic run riot. The usual go-to lawyers for the caring business class said using these laws to ban evil picketers is a good example of someone being creative and innovative in achieving that. So let's raise our stubbies, listener, and toast C United against Commissioner Gostin's Nickoff picketers and program for profit. Oh, and let's toast workers who just want to go to work without being intimidated by verbal violence in an abuse of freedom of speech. Thank goodness we've got the equal before the law law to protect such innocence. And thank goodness, thank goodness, the law applauds good caring employers who just want to sadly let go, cut wages by 65 or so percent and slash conditions. Nothing violent in that. But surely something has to be done about Scabby the Rat. Scabs don't deserve to have to confront Scabby every time they go to work because they just want to go to work. Sensible Scabs, happy to accept low, low wages and even lower conditions. Back to this injustice of stopping us hating restrictions on freedom of speech. But on a positive note, no restriction on really matters capital. And no connection to that appalling hoonsun other than she would agree in the national interest we mightn't want these people like the Terranullius people and other undesirable invaders here to adulterate our racial purity, but our capital can go there. That's why, as patriotic true blue Aussies, we're all so proud of Woodside with Profits Petroleum, buying into a new West African oil venture off Senegal to join its other joint ventures off Senegal and Guinea-Bissau and off the coast of Gabon. It's that concept where you get to know an area, you get experienced in it, you create relationships, and that's the best place for you to be. Big Supremo Peter Cole is beautiful stated. Uh, that's the best place to be to create relationships to benefit the local West African populations you must so care about. I don't follow. Uh, what have the local people got to do with it? Uh, the best place to be to get at the bloody oil. Spoken like a true, true blue on which top marks to, in fact, the my word you thought that one through award of the week, to the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin correspondent Jason. He's heart in the right place, but responding to that racist supporter throwing a banana at Indigenous footy star Eddie Betts while yelling monkey. Port Adelaide, Jason wrote, should lose its home showdown next year. Commendable sediment, Jason. Apart from the little matter that whoever is the home team, they both play on the same ground. Sport. 
a couple of well-known labels who have withdrawn their sponsorship of this U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world star swimmer who lied about a drunken night out in Rio claim his lying does not conform to their company standards. Very confusing because I'm sure I've seen their advertising. Never one to miss a photo op, big supremo Malcolm Tun of Bull turned up on the top step as True Blue Aussie's Olympic athletes alighted. Imagine facing allegations you've underperformed, because we're True Blue Aussie and we should win everything. People who tried their guts out, pilloried because someone or someones was stroke were better, facing that, then getting off the plane and the first thing you see, it's nightmarish. But at least Malcolm was honest. Compared to my performance, he told them, your performance was stellar, which was reassuring, as long as they didn't delve too deeply into his performance. Roxy Jarsinthaporo, wife of a convicted inside trader crook currently experiencing the inside bit, went on one of those commercial programs that masquerades as news to declare her husband innocent and iterate her indignation that he was even charged. After all, they have two kids who need their dad. Surely an infallible criminal defence. And the publicity surrounding what she wore to court every day was not of her making as a fashion industry person. She just liked to wear nice outfits. But poor Roxy said she found it infuriating that people assumed her designer outfits and the Bentley and the private jet and the luxury holidays, the, the whole luxury lifestyle, were funded by the proceeds of the insider trading. Uh, that's the insider trading, Roxy, of which you say he was innocent? Exactly! Well, in Chicago, the musical, not the city, we recall another Roxy, Roxy Hart, turned murder in a celebrity trial into a lucrative business, so good luck to our Roxy. Oh, and speaking of Roxy Hart, she, our Roxy, hasn't had the heart to tell the dear little kiddies their old man's in the slot, because he, he shouldn't be. How dare they lock up an inside trader when there are criminals calling scabs scabs? Lock them up and throw Scabby the rat in the cell with them. Junk Snacks brand True Blue Aussie, the maker of cheese hells and sundry related pieces of salt, fat and sugar junk with the nutritional value of, of, of well, of cheese hells and sundry related pieces of junk has been sold to a Philippines snack food giant with Junk Snacks brand assuring us the move will not change the products. They'll still be the same shit. Uh, uh, sorry, same product. Bringing us to our week that was nutritional health hint of the week. Notice Domino's fat and salt pizzas reckons that within a year or two, robots will be delivering its proud products. And our obvious health hint? We'd be a lot better off eating the robot. The move has been propelled by a ruling that Domino's fat and salt pizzas workers, quote, were missing out on as much as $32 million a year in unpaid penalty rates for weekend and night shifts, presumably not individually. An agreement concocted, surprise, surprise, with that doyen of working class solidarity, the shopping the workers' union, but having to pay the correct rate was described as facing a wages blowout. In other words, the problem lies fairly and squarely with workers expecting to be paid. Thus, the need to get rid of the workers and come up with nutritional, tasty robots. 
And as the government and the socialist opposition get together to see if they can overcome their chasmic philosophical and economic differences over slashing dole and pension bludges, dole and pensions, so we can do what the economy needs, like slashing taxes for those who generate wealth in this society, although economic gurus scuttle them more less, son, did launch an attack on the rich by conceding there are taxpayers and non-taxpayers. Finally, the latest wage data shows the lowest wage rises since the current wage price index was introduced. Backing up our advice to the Business Profits Council of Trublawazi two weeks ago, after it acknowledged to its credit that slow wages growth is a major problem affecting the economy. A harsh reality, it said, and those getting them agree on the harsh bit, but why don't they take our advice? As we said, if low wages are a problem, a harsh reality, there's a simple solution. Good morning. Ah, good on you, Kevin. Yes, that's right. They, It's amazing. They roll out all these people who are called economists or maybe... <laughs> And you're sort of sitting there, you're thinking, yes, but we know there's a problem. You know, there's no such thing as trickle-down effect. Every, even economists are saying that there's no trickle-down effect. But people who live it know it doesn't work. Why do rich people get remain rich? Because they don't share. I could be an economist. I could get up there and I could con- contradict myself constantly and get paid for it. That's exactly right. No, no, no. I think it's more like, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say? I can massage the uh, figures or the uh, discussion into that direction. So you just need to be able to speak and listen to someone in your ear at the same time, which is actually quite difficult. Yeah, and then there's that thing about if uh, the only people who, uh, you may not agree with them, but the only ones who've got any sensible things to say are the Marxists because actually they're talking about something real. You know when the global financial crisis happened and suddenly they all turn around and they go, Marx was right, and you read them and you go, okay, that's not exactly what he said. But <laughs> yeah, They must have exhumed him because in 1988 I remember thinking I'd better cut that piece, that article out of The Australian that says Marx is dead. They actually had a headline called Marx is dead. See, the neoliberals... They're a bit that, late. Yeah, that's what I thought at the time. Yeah, he's, he's buried, yeah. But they, they just figured, they really ideologically believed, the neoliberals in the late 80s, that they'd done their deals and uh, they had won. Right? History continues, early, though. Yeah, early 90s. Yeah, that was it. But anyway, we're going to move on and uh, talk about the uh, evil empire we're going to the US now. We're going to t- continue with our discussion with Vince Emanuel. We'll, we've cut it into pieces, so we will remind you that you are on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, Vince Emanuel, Installment 1. I agree with Michael Moore. Now, whether or not Michael Moore is, you know, Michael Moore recently said in an interview that he's very scared that Trump could win. Now, I think Michael Moore's perspective is somewhat skewed because he lives in the state of Michigan. This has been a state that's been utterly deindustrialized and manufacturing Mm. jobs have been wiped away. Poverty has skyrocketed. The natural environment has been destroyed by these industries and people have been left behind in a state of sort of permanent urban decay. So I can see why, uh, because that's Trump's base. This is, you know, I live in the state of Indiana, anywhere in the Great Lakes region. So that's Wisconsin, 
uh, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan, Pennsylvania, upstate New York. These are play. This is sort of Trump's wheelhouse. This is a lot of white former unionized workers, a lot of people who used to have good manufacturing jobs, and a lot of people who are now working jobs for ten, twelve dollars an hour if they're lucky. And the and environment you know the too. Yes, in fact, uh, about thirty miles to my west in a city called East Chicago, Indiana. There's enough lead poisoning in the soil where they are now going to move several thousand people from housing complexes because it is no longer safe for them to live in their housing complexes. They've already had signs up in their yards explaining or trying to warn kids not to play in the dirt, not to play in the grass, and not to play in the mall. I bring this up as one example, and this is happening in my personal area, you know, an area that I care deeply about. And it reminds me that this is something that's going on throughout the Midwest, throughout the Rust Belt. I mean, all of these areas, not only the social decay, the cultural devastation, the economic devastation, and now urban areas that are literally ghost towns, but also it is left behind a completely ravaged natural environment. You you think to yourself, there's so much work to be done in America, for example. You could revitalize the entire country and the population by concentrating on doing that work. Yeah, it's, it's great that you bring that up. I think we forget this because of all this craziness with Trump and people feel very economically insecure and it's becoming harder and harder for people to live. But the, you know, the reality is we're running out of time. You know, the ecologists and the climate scientists, they're all very clear about this. I mean, we can debate all of these other issues we want. The climate scientists have been very clear year after year after year. They come to the public and they say, you know what, our predictions from last year, they were far too conservative. Actually, right. things are, actually, things are much worse than we thought they were. Uh, let me bring this back to like a perspective of people who are organizing. So I'm hearing my friends say, we want to create a third party. Now, is, on the surface, is there anything wrong with that? Of course not. I would love for there to be 15 different parties, a completely different parliamentary system. Um, let's get rid of representative voting. Let's, let's do something totally different. I agree with all of that. The question for us is, How much time as activists, organizers, people who are interested in creating a better world, artists, so on, how much time are we willing to spend on projects like that? Because the reality is that we have a limited amount of time to drastically change things. Like we have, according to most climate scientists, now there's some who say we're already doomed. There's some who say we have more time than people think. There's some who would argue, I think, in between there that, hey, we've got about a decade to completely shift the way that we interact with the natural environment, to shift our uses from fossil fuels and so on. Um, If we have a decade, then do we really have time to rebuild the Democratic Party? Do we really have time to create a vibrant Green Party? I mean, when we really think to ourselves, what kind of activities and what kinds of projects should we uh, interact with? should we devote our time toward? I think it has to be talked about within this context of ecological collapse. You take away climate change and take away nuclear weapons or the possibility of nuclear warfare. And I I would argue that humanity could figure it out. I would argue that you give humanity another couple hundred years and there's going to be less sexism, there's going to be less racism, there's going to be less warfare, there's going to be better economic systems and so forth. But we don't have that time. For the first time in history as activists and organizers, we're working with a time frame and a very specific time frame that gets 
more and more critical as the years go on. And yes, he's right. Vince always has this capacity to raise the important issues. Well, yeah, it's not um, it's not nice having a clock. Although I, I'm not sure entirely that I agree with Vince. It's rude to disagree when someone's not here. But I think that it is entirely possible for things to just go backwards even in, in 100 years. Goodness me. Well, anyway, you're on 3CR with Annie and Kim and we're having, we're, we've got collected together some further excerpts with Vince Emanuel. He uh, lives in Chicago. He's an activist. Uh, he's a, uh, a man who's uh, had um, uh, several tours of duty in Iraq. He, uh, when he came back, he did a complete uh, turn and is a peace activist. But he's got further things to say about a whole range of things. He does articles for Talasur, so you can catch up with him there. But we'll continue with our chat about. We started. We were really talking about, you know, the, well, probably the. What does it mean that Trump is uh, so uh, doing so well in the polls? But there's uh, further further issues to discuss. It's a system and a series of institutions where there's much more continuity between those systems than there are differences regardless of who runs the system. And this is what's important about the – so to tie this into Trump and Clinton and so forth, I think it's really important for people to not so much study individuals as much as they study how different apparatuses and mechanisms and institutions function regardless of who's in power or who's not in power. That, to me, seems like a much more interesting conversation. And if we're interested in changing our economic system, then we have to talk about how that institution functions more than how people function within that institution. And that's something that I don't think we've really got. I don't think we've gotten quite to that point. So in other words, let's say Bernie Sanders was elected president of the United States. Would there have been things that obviously it would have been much more positive than the two options that we have now? That being said, however, what I think would have been very interesting about that is how the left would have reacted to a Bernie Sanders presidency. We see this in Greece with Syriza, where once they took power, people thought, well, my God, these are good people. These are socialists, communists, anarchists, community activists, organizers, social workers, teachers, union representatives who largely made up the political party and the apparatus of the Syriza party. But once that party took power and actually had to wield state power, militaries, police forces, sanitation, and so on, it turned out that they started to behave and are behaving much like their predecessors. Now, are they a little bit better? Of course, they're a little bit better than the, the alternative and, and the previous uh, regimes who, who dismantled and sold off pieces of Greece. And this is true in the United States. Is there aspects of the Obama presidency that are better than the Bush presidency? Of course, you'd be, I think, ridiculous and sectarian and sort of very ideological and dogmatic to, to argue otherwise. But the point is, is that there's actually more continuity between the Bush and Obama presidencies as there are differences. And this is where I think we can have an interesting conversation. So it's not just about jailing people, replacing individuals with better individuals, but actually getting into the nuts and bolts of how these systems function and either radically changing these systems and or, as some of my friends would argue, we need to dismantle these systems and come up with alternative uh, institutions. Now, that sounds very scary for people. But to me, and very challenging, but to me, it doesn't sound any more scary or challenging than when someone tells me 
that we're going to stick with the status quo. Because if we stick with the status quo, as the climate scientists uh, continue to tell us, you know, we're not going to have a planet to live on. There won't be human beings uh, on this planet by the end of the century. So this is really challenging. I mean, what I found challenging is just talking to my neighbors, talking to people I know uh, about these issues. And do you have... Uh, passive allies, you have active allies, you have people who are passively, or I'm sorry, you know, passively opposed to you, actively opposed to you, and so on. No, that's, it's very true. I mean, this was Martin Luther King's, Martin Luther King Jr.'s sort of famous philosophy in terms of trying to turn people, you know, he would argue, I'm not trying to bring segregationists to our side. I'm trying to get the people who are on the fence between desegregation and segregation. You know, those, that's our target audience. And, so this is true. So here in the U.S., you have a lot of people who are like that. You have a lot of people, you know, just to give people a perspective, there's 324 million people in the U.S. 109 million of them are ineligible to vote. So that leaves us with about uh, 200, let's say, 20 million people. Out of that 220 million people who are actually eligible to vote, only 120 million of them are going to uh, vote in the general election in November. And only 60 million of that 120 million actually voted in the primary. And less than half from both sides chose Trump or Clinton. So as the New York Times recently pointed out, only 9% of the American population voted for either Trump or Clinton in the last 14 months. Is that amazing or what? Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? So, you know, so this is, and this is what I try and get across to my friends who are overseas because people overseas are, oh, my God, I can't. You know, why do you people choose these people? Why is everything so screwed up in the U.S.? How could you how could people support Trump? What people have to understand is it's actually a fraction of the American population that supports either Trump or Clinton. The way the system is set up again, and this brings us back to talking about changing systems, the way the system is set up in our representative democracy really benefits the status quo. You know, this this idea that uh we could have radical change through these existing mechanisms is really silly. We, people have to understand that when this government was set up, and this is talked about in the Federalist Papers and by Hamilton and Madison, I believe specifically Federalist Paper number four, but they, you know, the, the idea of creating this huge republic was that if there was rebellion that broke out in one part of the republic, so let's say there was a rebellion in Virginia, would that rebellion spread to Texas fast enough to be able to overthrow or to be able to drastically change the U.S. government? And the answer is no. So far, this is essentially one of the more stable governments in the world. Um, And there's a reason for that. It was set up to be an extremely slow-moving, extremely conservative constitutional republic. And it's played out that way. So in order for us to, to challenge these industries, these corporations, these banks, and in order for us to create alternatives... Of course, we're going to have to have people within the system who are sympathetic to this cause. But I think we're going to have to largely work outside of this system. And how people create those alternatives while simultaneously dealing with this system, how do they create those alternatives as portions of this system continue to fail and, and or, let's say, collapse? That, those are the questions, I think, for us right now. Because people are seeing that there's no alternative. And this is also creating a lot of apathy you know so once bernie sanders was defeated you know i heard many of my friends and family sort of say well this is it you know this is this is it that was our shot and 
you know, now that the campaign is over, um, what are we going to do? For the millions of people who were just brought into the system for the first time during the Bernie Sanders campaign, if the left isn't organized enough to bring those people into the mix in a very meaningful way, we run the risk of allowing these people to sort of go home in a very nihilistic and apathetic fashion where people are saying, you know what, we had a chance with Bernie, now we're stuck with either this neoliberal crook in Hillary Clinton or we're stuck with this neo-fascist lunatic in Donald Trump. And, and that can really be disempowering as well. Well, he said it, not me. <laughs> yeah, I think he's really hit the nail on the head there. It's what happens actually outside of the political arena when ordinary people actually assert themselves or whether they don't. That's important with Syriza or, you know, whether Bernie Sanders got elected or whether Trump or Hillary gets elected. Yeah. So we'll come, we'll just listen to the last piece that we've got from Vince Emanuel. You're on Solidarity Breakfast 3CR with Annie and Kim. Uh, He says some really interesting things uh, about people on the ground. And uh, I thought that uh, people might find this very interesting. You know, it's kind of interesting about Trump. Uh, In some respects, he seems to be like a intellectually challenged eight-year-old. (laughs) <laughs> which you know doesn't mean that you're not sophisticated enough to do the things that he's done but right. um it means that uh it's like a uh, a fat baby you know give me baby a greedy baby well you know he it's it's clear though it's, all the inside reports are saying that he actually has no interest in policies he's he has no no that's right and i was wondering if that just doesn't fit the that he's public like he's a mirror to the public that he's talking to. They don't right. have any interest in po- policy either. It's all about greedy baby stuff. Well, at least for 9% of the population, that's true. And see, this is what I mean. When you, go, when you look at the actual numbers, again, there's not that many people who support the guy. There's just enough within the system to get him elected. That's a lot different than, you know, say, sort of making it – an overgeneralization about the American public that's not interested. So, for instance, there were almost as many people who voted for Trump in the primaries as voted for... Uh, actually, there's more people who voted for Bernie Sanders in the primaries than voted for Trump. Now, oh, Bernie well, Sanders was in a primary with only one other person. Donald Trump was in a primary, as I mentioned, with all the way up to 16 other candidates. So, obviously, the votes were split during much of the primaries. But nonetheless, there was just as many people and more people who showed up for Bernie Sanders. So... Again, you know, this wasn't talked about in the media. There wasn't an honest conversation in the mainstream media. So a lot of people in the United States and around the world are left believing that, oh, my God, you know, a a huge section of America actually supports Donald Trump, when in reality it's a very small percentage. Um, And it should also, as I said, be noted that just as many people, if not more, and I would have to look at the exact data for this, but I know it is very close, if not more, for showed up for Bernie Sanders. So this message of being engaged with policy being involved with social movements, you know, doing something about climate change, challenging the bankers, you know, challenging uh, U.S. militarism abroad to the limited extent that Bernie Sanders talked about that particular issue. But these other issues, I think he did articulate very well to the public. There's a lot of people within the American public who actually want something much different. And, you know, I do think, he, yeah, he's playing to the worst of society, the most ignorant of society. But, you know, again, Annie, this is... It's no different than what's happening in in France right now. So you look at the areas that the National Front has done very well. 
And these are areas that are former industrialized areas. In fact, if you go back to the 1960s and 70s, these are areas in France that were primarily uh, socialist, communist, anarchist, and left-wing. Now, because there's not a vibrant left, it left, sorry, in, the, in France, these people are left gravitating towards extreme right ideologies. Because at least people like Le Pen come in and they say, well, you know what, you're being screwed. The factories are being shipped overseas. The European Union really didn't do you any good. And, and you know, they just go on down the line. Now, some of what they say, much like Trump, is true for all of the wrong reasons. But nonetheless, these are people in the United States who are the poorest among us in terms of the white Americans. Goodness, this has got shades of fascist Germany, I'll tell you what. Right, right. And, but, you know, again, for the left, for people who are organizers, activists, whatever people call themselves, just decent-hearted human beings who want to live in a better world, they're going to have to reach out to these supporters because the more, in my opinion, this is, this is my opinion now. I don't, this is just shooting from the hip and this is mm-hmm. coming from my heart and, and anecdotally what I see. I worry that if this continues, that this country will turn into sort of a larger version of South Africa where we will have a political party that is an almost exclusively white political party, and we will have people living in rural areas in the United States that are exclusively white and that are completely detached from the urban cosmopolitan environments that some of their peers are living in. And these are also people who will be completely detached from Latino and African-American black communities throughout the United States. And the more and more this happens within this context of climate change, within this context of a capitalist system that's failing people, within this context of extreme gun violence and tons of millions, hundreds of millions of weapons being throughout the United, being available throughout the United States, this truly concerns me. This is where I think the left really has to ask themselves, organizers and activists really have to ask themselves whether or not they are willing to organize segments of Trump's base I'm not arguing it's going to be easy. I'm not arguing that, uh, that we're going to organize the majority of them. I'm not even arguing that we're going to organize half of them. What I'm arguing is that we're going to have to organize a significant portion of, the, of his supporters who really, by all means, should be you know, leftists, activists, progressives, and so on, and maybe who at one time were, much like in France. Um, but we're going to have to organize these segments. And again, I'm not saying it'll be easy, but I think it's going to absolutely be necessary. I, I don't see how we can survive as a nation if we continue to div- be as divided and fractured as we are now. Because it is literally like talking to people from different planets. I have neighbors who are Trump supporters. So I had a guy who was just walking his dog a couple weeks ago who came by. and We started talking. I know he's a Trump supporter. And he starts telling me that Obama's bringing a million Syrian refugees to the United States. Now, Annie... The actual number is 10,000, and oh so far we've only, we've, only, we've only brought over 5,000. This person believes, without a shadow of a doubt, and there was nothing I could tell him that would make him believe otherwise, that Barack Obama, because he's a Muslim plant, he, he believes that Obama's a, a Muslim and that he's been planted here. You know, this isn't an outlier. This is part of the norm now. So I'm running into other people. I've got another neighbor who came by, and he was trying to tell me, that Obama and Clinton were actually the extension of this socialist project that's been going on. That there's this broad, vast, left-wing conspiracy to make America a socialist country and that Hillary Clinton is just the extension of Obama's socialism. 
Now, I laugh when people tell me that stuff because I say, oh, my God, you have no idea how happy I would be if this is really what was going on. <laughs> like, if this was really a left-wing conspiracy, I can tell you, I promise, I would be a part of the cabinet or something. Like, I would love to be, you know, <laughs> I would love to be a minister or whatever, you know. It's just but, crazy. But it's amazing, Annie. This is, these are different worlds. Now, if yeah, you talk yeah. to my neighbors uh, who live right next door to me who are great people, they supported Bernie Sanders. And, you know, they're saying, oh, my God, I, Worried about my kids going to school. I need better jobs. You know, these people are living a few doors away from each other. How about that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. These people with these conspiracy theories, and it's like I wish we had that much power. <laughs> <laughs> You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and we've come to the end of the program. And that was a delightful chat with uh, Vince Emmanuel, who uh, lives in uh, Chicago and writes for Talasur. T-E-L-E-S-U-R, which is an online uh, uh, newspaper with lots of interesting opinions. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, that just really takes my breath away. Uh, Who else did we have on the program? Well, we began it with Anthony Lowenstein um, about uh, what's been happening in Honduras, which is quite harrowing. (laughs) Yeah, I'd say again. And sometimes you sort of think to yourself, oh, my God, don't uh, be careful of what for what you wish, they live incredibly difficult lives. And uh, to think that uh, their home country is so uh, dangerous that they would uh, pursue the very dangerous trip to go and live in the US because apparently the US is the dream of all people who are aiming for stability and economic freedom. Well, it's interesting that we started with that and then ended with... (laughs) (laughs) The dream exposed. Yeah, um, that's right. And then we talked to Tess Dimos, who is from the Monash Student Associ- um, Association, and she is the social justice officer. And we talked about a bit of a victory there, stopping the deportation of uh, Dr. Benik and his family. Yes, and uh, yeah, fantastic stuff. Uh, uh, direct action and uh, intelligent action that caused uh, uh, a positive end. This is the week that was with Kevin. And we finished, of course, with uh, Vince Emmanuel. And uh, we're going to go out with uh, a track I started to play, which was uh, Took the Children Away, Archie Roach. Now, Archie Roach apparently has been doing an incredibly successful tour in France. They love him. Mm. Well, why wouldn't they? Good taste. Yeah, good taste. And uh, uh, I was talking to someone about uh, every time I hear Archie Roach, you can't help it, but you want to cry. He he has this uh, an amazing ability to tap straight into your your emotion sector. Uh, <laughs> I think it's extraordinary. And uh, he's coming. Uh, he's doing a tour here uh, coming up. So look online or all about, and you'll be able to get tickets to hear Archie Roach. But uh, they took the children away. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.